If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Mark 13 as we get back into it. You know, it seems like every few years it's without fail that there's another person who claims to know the exact day Jesus will return. It's been going on forever, ever since Jesus himself predicted that he would return. People have been very desperately trying to find out when. For example, Pope Sylvester II predicted that Jesus would return on January 1st, 1000. And forget Y2K, that was Y1K, and they had the same crisis. More famously, William Miller, a Baptist preacher, predicted the return of Jesus on March 21st, 1844. And his followers took him dead serious. They were known as the Millerites. And so many of them, they sold all their possessions, all their property. They were banking on Jesus coming back. Well, March 21st passed, Jesus didn't show up, so he made a little revision. He said April 18th, 1844, but still, no Jesus, didn't show up. Another Millerite, Samuel S. Snow, he took a shot, he made a prediction that he would come back, and it's really October 22nd, 1844, and that became the the grand date. Well, you, you obviously know how that one ended. These failed predictions were known as the Great Disappointment, and the Millerites were ridiculed, Many of them were tarred and feathered, just driven out of their communities. A lot of them left the faith. Some of them, though, the most devout, they refused to be wrong, so they changed their tune and started to claim that, no, Jesus did come on October 22nd, 1844, in heaven. There's a heavenly coming, a spiritual coming, and judgment. The Millerites eventually morphed into the Seventh-day Adventists, and they still teach today that there is a spiritual coming of Jesus on October 22nd, 1844. You know, when we hear this, we too scoff because, you know, how could someone be so foolish as to try and predict the the day of Christ's return, especially when he himself said no one knows. But amazingly, this thing, this type of thing still happens today. I'm sure you all remember just five years ago when Harold Camping made his predictions of family radio and he made some failed predictions back in 1994. Somehow he's still on the radio and people were still giving him money. Well, he had some new math and he made some new predictions that Jesus was actually coming back on May 21st, 2011. He would rapture the saved to heaven and then there'd be five months of fire and brimstone on the earth. And then October 21st, 2011 would be the end. That's when it all is over. You know, a lot of false teachers make false claims, but camping was set apart because he had money. For some reason, people gave him lots of money, and that money went to billboards and ads and all this stuff. Publicizing was actually very public that May 21st, that's going to be it. Well, May 21st came, there was no rapture. So Camping made his revision, that's how it works, you know, you make a revision. And he said Jesus came spiritually on May 21st, but he stuck by his guns that October 21st, that would be the end. And once again, no surprise, that date came and went you know, a lot of his followers were likewise outraged because he refused to give refunds to all the money, all the donations. There were no refunds. And a lot of people lost a lot of money, but there's really not a lot of public sympathy for those people because, I mean, they were, let's face it, foolish enough to get duped into some guy making another prediction of Christ coming back. And really, we would say such people deserve their rebukes because, you know, if you claim to be a Christian, you should know better. The date of Christ's return is not knowable. It's purposely been hidden, and you're not going to figure it out. Just face it, after 2,000 years, you're not going to figure it out. Christians should know better than to try and prove Jesus wrong, because he himself said in the text we have today that nobody knows the day or the hour 
of his return. It's in Mark 13. If you haven't already, you can open up there, Mark chapter 13. We're back in the Olivet Discourse today. It's been a couple months through this chapter, and we're nearly done. As you recall, throughout this whole chapter, this Olivet Discourse, Jesus has made quite a few significant predictions. The disciples asked Jesus for the signs of his coming and of the end of the age, and he proceeded to tell them many events that would take place in the future before he returned. So we're dealing with a load of predictive prophecy here in Mark 13. For example, he said there will be many false Christs, verse 6, and wars, verse 7. There's going to be earthquakes in many places and famines, verse 8. Meanwhile, the faithful will be persecuted, verse 9. Some will even be martyred, verse 12. Already, it's quite a series of predictions. It gets even more specific, verse 14. He predicts this business about the abomination of desolation, We spent a whole week studying that where this Antichrist figure, halfway through the seven-year tribulation, breaks his treaty with Israel and and desecrates the temple. Overall, this signals the beginning of a a great tribulation where Jesus says it will be the worst time period the planet has ever known, verse 19. And now, of course, all of his predictions culminate in the grandest prediction, that's his own second coming, predicted in verses 24 through 27. So again, we're dealing with just loads of predictions, predictive prophecy here in the Olivet Discourse. These events have not happened yet, so it begs the question, okay, when? When's this all going to happen? When will these things be fulfilled? When will Jesus come? Or, you know, has this already been fulfilled? Are we missing something here? Is this maybe somehow in the past this already took place? Basically, the question is this. We've been setting the Olivet Discourse for many weeks, What is the nature of the fulfillment that we should expect from Christ's words? Everything we've been studying, what is the nature of the fulfillment of everything Jesus has said? It's a valid question, and that's the question that Jesus himself addresses in the text we have for this morning. The main portion of the Olivet Discourse is over. Now that we enter into verse 28, he just finished telling of his return. Now he's moving on to some concluding remarks And he starts by addressing the nature of the fulfillment of everything he just said. How's it all going to go down? Well, we're going to find out. Our purpose today, as we keep moving along, is to find out from Jesus what type of fulfillment we should expect from the Olivet Discourse. What should we make of all those predictions he just gave? And for many weeks, we've been exploring and explaining these predictions. And this morning, we don't want to rehash all that. We really want to talk about How will it be fulfilled? The nature of fulfillment. What does Jesus say about that? Well, verses 28 through 32, we find out. Let's read that passage now. Mark 13. Today we're in verses 28 through 32. He says, Now learn from the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening... Recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. This is a special passage near the end of the Olivet Discourse. It it deserves our full attention. 
Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of his words, and that's still our concern. We want to know, well, how is all this going to be fulfilled? We're going to find out this morning. And to help you with that, let me give you four aspects of the Olivet Discourse's fulfillment. Four aspects of the Olivet Discourse's fulfillment, so that you know what to expect and how to expect it in regards to what we've been studying for you know, a couple months now. Four aspects of the Olivet Discourse's fulfillment. And we'll start with number one, the sign of fulfillment. That's how he starts. He gives the sign of fulfillment. After he gives the main prophetic portion of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus adds several parables that help explain or apply what he just said. And the first is the parable of the fig tree. Verse 28, look there again. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. As Jesus, he always says this. He takes something from the physical world and he, he takes it to teach about something from the spiritual world. In this case, it's the fig tree. And what's he teaching? Well, like he says, when its branch has become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Most fig trees are also known as ficus plants. They're, they're in the tropics. They're evergreens. They don't lose their leaves. But the common fig is native to the Middle East, and it's a deciduous tree, which means it loses its leaves in the fall before winter. You can think of, for example, our liquid amber trees outside in our parking lot, or if you're from the East Coast, maple trees. You know the drill. They lose their leaves in the fall. Jesus could have made a point, his point from any deciduous tree, but... They all go through the same life cycle. Winter rolls around, temperatures drop, the leaves drop. It's a way of protecting the tree from the harsh winter. Then spring comes back, the temperatures rise, and the leaves return. I mean, that's just how it goes. It's a natural phenomena everyone's familiar with. Pretty much since kindergarten, everyone knows. When you see a tree and the leaves go from green to yellow to orange and they fall off, that means winter is right around the corner. That's just how it works. And likewise, you see a bear tree and the leaves come back. Well, that means summer is right around the corner. And that, that's pretty much it. But in other words, you can see the leaves, are, they're like signs. The leaves are like signs. And when they come back, the sign says, summer is near. Summer is close. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus always takes something very simple and teaches us something spiritual about it. And so what's the connection? Well, he makes a connection to verse 29. Verse 29. He says, Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Jesus moves from the physical to the spiritual. And he's teaching that in a similar fashion. When you see these things happening, it means that not summer, but Jesus is near. Just like the leaves were signs that summer was near, so too all these events that he's talking about, they are signs that his return is near. Remember, yet again, what question the disciples were asking of Jesus that spawned this whole discussion? Matthew 24, 3, Jesus was sitting on top of the Mount of Olives. The disciples come up to him and they ask him what? Matthew 24, 3, they say, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's what they want to know. They were expecting the messianic kingdom to come like any moment. But 
This is right near the crucifixion. They're starting to realize that the kingdom might not come in its fullness as soon as they thought. So they're asking Jesus, okay, well, when? When are you, the Messiah, when are you going to come in that kingdom glory, that transfiguration glory? When's, when's the kingdom coming? What, what signs will precede it? We can expect when it's going to happen. That's what they want to know. They want to know the signs of his coming in the kingdom. And here he gives it to them. He says, it's all these things. When you see these things happening, well, that's the sign that Christ is near. Now, the next question, of course, well, what's that talking about? What are these things? He says, when you see these things happening, Christ is near. Well, what are these things? Well, not that. <laughs> Close. But in this case, you know, verse 29, when you see these things happening, you just have to look backwards to the, to the near context, what, what he was just talking about before that to find out. It's pretty obvious. And in this case, it's everything in verses 5 through 23. It's all the things, all the events that he just listed would take place right before he returned. He talked about the second coming in verses 24 through 27. And verses 5 through 23, before that, he talked about the birth pangs. All these events, all these signs that precede the second coming. In a very uncomplicated manner, when, when you see the events described in verses 5 through 23 taking place, when all that goes down, well, there's your sign that summer is near, that Jesus is near. We spent weeks learning about these verses, studying them, and, and we've learned they are indeed signs of the beginning of the end. That's how Jesus described them. He called them birth pangs. When these things all come together, it's like the beginning of labor. And you know when labor starts. The birth pangs intensify, and they always end in one way, with the coming of the sun. And that's what will happen. The disciples asked Jesus for the sign of his coming and the end of the age, and he gave it to them. This is the sign of his fulfillment, or rather, the sign of fulfillment. All the events of the tribulation signal that Jesus is near. He's right at the door. Now, when these signs begin, how long after that will Jesus will it take for Christ to return? Well, we find out, number two, the speed of fulfillment. The speed of fulfillment. How, how, how's it gonna, how quickly will this all happen? Well, it's actually what he's talking about in verse 30. Look there again. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, here we finally come to a controversial verse. What makes it controversial? Well, within the Orthodox faith, there's some disagreement, some debate about which generation Jesus is talking about. To whom does this generation refer? I mean, is he talking about the generation of the disciples who are sitting right there before him? That means everything he just predicted, it's going to be fulfilled before they all die out. Is that what he means? Or is he talking about some other generation, like a future generation, generation that will see all these things that he described? What is it? Well, I actually talked about some of this back in the second sermon in this Ovid Discourse series. And there I introduce you to the view of preterism. Remember that? Preterism. Preterists believe that all or most of what Jesus taught in the Ovid Discourse was fulfilled in the past. Remember, today we're trying to nail down the nature of the fulfillment of everything Jesus said. And preterists believe, well, it's all in the past. It's already happened. Everything he talked about here in this chapter already happened. When? 
by the year AD 70, and that's the year when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. Why would they believe that? Well, largely because of this verse. They just take this to mean that this generation can only mean the generation of the disciples. And so this had to be fulfilled before they all died. And also, you know, there are some similarities with what Jesus says here and the events of A.D. 70. In fact, everyone believes that one verse, verse 2, was fulfilled back in A.D. 70. Look, look back at verse 2. This is where he initially predicts the destruction of the temple. This is what started the whole discussion. They're leaving the temple. This is just a few days before the cross. And what does he say? What does Jesus predict? Verse 2. He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. That's a prediction, and that was fulfilled straight up in AD 70. So everyone sees that. That's, that's fair. But preterists, they take it further, and they say this whole, everything that comes after that also refers to the year AD 70. So it's all past. This no longer applies. It's all in the past. Now we here do not share that view. Now, at best, you could argue for some form of near fulfillment to Christ's predictions in AD 70. I talked about that in the second Olivet Discourse sermon. So you're, at this point, you're going to have to go back and download the second sermon if you want the full scoop on the near and far fulfillment of prophecy. But certainly, I could say this, you don't have a full or a complete fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse in AD 70. And at this point, I want to just take a little, little brief rabbit trail to tell you why. It's, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but sometimes it's, it's good for me to tell you what we believe and also why we believe it. Useful for you to see for, from Scripture yourself why we believe certain things. In this case, I want to give you just a few reasons why the Olivet Discourse is not talking about the past, but it's talking about still the future. This is still to come. And here's some reasons why. It's a little sidetrack, side but nonetheless. One main significant reason is that the predictions of Jesus here, you just take them seriously at face value, they just don't line up with AD 70. Take, for example, the scope of Christ's predictions. He foretells of this worldwide, global cataclysm, where verse 8, nation rises up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But in AD 70, you've got one nation, Rome, rising up against one nation, Israel, and a tiny corner of the planet, it just doesn't fit. There's also a global scope to evangelism in the time he describes. Verse 10, he says, The gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. In the parallel, Matthew 24, 14 says, The whole world will hear the gospel. It's a testimony given to all the nations. It's emphatic. That didn't happen in AD 70. The Great Commission was not fulfilled in AD 70. Additionally, you have the unprecedented intensity of Christ's predictions the level of disaster and destruction and death, it's unparalleled. I mean, look back at verse 19, 20. Mark 13, verse 19. He's talking about that time, and he says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Verse 20, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Even if you try and spiritualize Christ's words, really under no stretch of the imagination can you make the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 fit those verses. 
I mean, yeah, the, the siege was bad, but it wasn't that bad. It's not like the Holocaust or the global flood. Christ says that time will be the worst time period the planet has ever known. And I don't see how you can make that to mean anything other than what he just says. And the same goes for all this business with the abomination of desolation, verse 14. We studied that. It's paralleled in Daniel and Revelation. And really nothing like that took place in AD 70. Roman emperors Nero, Vespasian, Titus, they fall far short from being candidates for the Antichrist. They were not the Antichrist. It just doesn't fit. And then here's the real kicker. Jesus says, verse 30, our verse, this generation will not pass away until what? Until all these things take place. All these things. What things? Everything he was just talking about. What was he just talking about? What was the last thing he just mentioned before he says, verse 30? Well, it was the second coming. Verses 24 through 27. That, that's what he's just finished talking about. So look, here's the bottom line. If you want to claim that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about AD 70, then you somehow have to fit the second coming in the year AD 70. And that includes the sun darkening, the angels gathering the elect from the four corners, every tribe seeing the Son of Man in the sky. Hopefully you can see that's quite a stretch for AD 70. Of course, preterists, they have only one option here, and that is to spiritualize the words of Jesus, where nothing really means what it seems to mean. They take verse 30, our verse, they take verse 30 with this hardcore literalism where this generation can only mean the generation of the disciples. No discussion. But then after that, they forsake the literal view of everything else. Nothing else can really be that literal because it doesn't match up. It has to be, you know, figurative. And you can see a huge problem there. In the end, they're forced to claim that Jesus came figuratively in judgment upon Israel in AD 70. But to me, that's a pretty hard sell, especially since Jesus himself established the literal precedent to the fulfillment of his own words. Again, back in verse 2, how we started it all, he made this prediction that the temple would be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And the disciples heard that, and their minds are like, "There's okay, that's not happening. There's no way that's going to happen. That, at least not literally. That's The temple was their centerpiece. It can't be destroyed. But how was that crazy prediction fulfilled? 100% literally. And the same goes for a whole host of other crazy prophecies like the virgin birth and the death of the Messiah. There's no way they could conceive of such things, but they all were fulfilled just as given, literally. In the end, the claim that Jesus returned in AD 70, even spiritually speaking, should give a great pause to serious Bible students and should sound a little fishy. It's all the more incredulous because if he really did come in AD 70, even spiritually, nobody noticed it. Nobody. Not until the 17th century when preterism emerged did someone finally realize that, hey, I guess Jesus returned in AD 70, spiritually speaking. But for all of church history... No one has ever thought until the past 300 years that this, these verses applied to AD 70. They've always taken the view, straightforward, this is talking about the future, because these things have not happened yet, and that's what we do as well. And we can keep going, there's a lot more, but we don't want to get too sidetracked here. I just want to take a little moment to show you, and from time to time, there are good reasons why we hold to certain views and not others, and these are our brothers in Christ, there's no major disagreement here. But there are some distinctives that we hold, and 
want to tell you why, at the very least. Now, back to our, our passage. Still, we haven't given an alternative understanding of this generation in verse 30. So let's do that now. Verse 30, he says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So our question is, to which generation is Jesus referring? Well, there's no way of knowing unless the context indicates what's he talking about. Now, it's true. Many times Jesus uses that phrase, this generation, and he's talking about his generation, the generation of the disciples. But every time, it's obvious in the context. He's talking about his generation. But you just can't make that assumption. For example, listen to Hebrews 3.10. There it says, God says, therefore, I was angry with this generation. There's our phrase, this generation. What generation? Well, you might assume it's just talking about the generation of the disciples, you know, the first century generation. But you'd be wrong. You have to study the, the text, the context, and if you did so, you'd find out, pretty obvious, it's actually talking about the generation of Jews who were forced to wander the wilderness. And the point is this. Look, when you're studying the Bible, don't assume things. Study the text and the context. Words and phrases derive their meaning from the context. Context is king. So now in our text and context, what does the context say about the identity of this generation? Well, look, it just goes right back to the parable of the fig tree, which he was just talking about. And notice the other key phrase repeated twice. He says, these things. Verse 30, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until what? Until all these things take place. What things? We just talked about that. Verse 29, the events of the tribulation, everything he is just talking about. Verse 29, when you see these things happening, Jesus is near. Verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Both verses are referring back to verses 5 through 23, all the events he just predicted that would precede his return. And so those didn't take place in AD 70. Therefore, what generation is he talking about? He's talking about the generation of the tribulation. And that's it. it it's pretty simple. The same generation that sees the leaves come back will be the same generation that sees the summer. That's the whole point. The same generation that sees the beginning of the birth pangs will be the same generation that sees Christ come back. It's, it's really not that complicated. And again, wasn't that the exact meaning of the parable of the fig tree? If you see the leaves, the summer, then summer is near. Well, the generation that sees the leaves will also see the summer. That's the point. The generation that's alive, when these things begin, it's going to be the same generation that sees Christ come back. And here we actually see the lesson he's trying to teach by saying this. You know, what's the point? Well, he's actually giving an encouragement of sorts in regards to the speed of fulfillment. When the end starts, as we study, it's going to be bad. Remember all those verses of destruction? It's going to be bad, but thankfully, it won't be long. It's not going to go on forever. And that's, that's a subtle bit of good news. If the events of destruction that Jesus described went on forever, no one would survive, he said. But thankfully, that's not the case. Within one generation, the end will begin and the end will come. That's what he means. 
And in, in this way, this is actually a form of an encouragement to believers living during that time. They may suffer, they may be persecuted, but at the very least, it won't last long. All they have to do is hold on to the faith and to Christ for a little while longer, and Jesus will come. He will come quickly, and they will be saved. In the end, the verse really shouldn't be as complicated as some make it out to be, but that's what happens when you try and bend a text to your pre-existing theology. But when you let it stand by itself, it's pretty straightforward. It's actually encouraging that the fulfillment of Christ's words in this discourse, they're swift. This will happen quickly. And this is, therefore, number two, the speed of fulfillment. Number one, the sign of fulfillment. Number two, the speed of fulfillment. It will be swift. Number three now, moving along. Now let's move on to the sureness of fulfillment. Number three, the sureness of fulfillment. Verse 31. Back in Mark 13, look at verse 31. He says after this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This really is an important verse that you want to take note of here because in one sentence, Jesus sets himself up totally opposed to the world today. I mean, what do the supposed great men and scholars of our day say today? They say that heaven and earth are eternal. They've always existed. They always will. The latest refrain coming from science is that space and matter are eternal. And meanwhile, they scoff at scripture. They say it's false. It's full of errors. It's going to pass away. Sooner or later, science will outpace religion, and no one will care about this Jesus stuff anymore. But Jesus stakes his claim in the opposite direction. He says, to the contrary, this this heaven and earth, they're going to pass away. God created them, and God will destroy them. That's actually affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. 2 Peter 3, for example. After Jesus comes with his millennial kingdom, there's a transition where God once for all cleanses the universe of sin and its stain. The present heavens and earth are done away with. And God creates a new heavens and a new earth, an eternal state. And let me, let me read you one of those verses. This is uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It's a global warming verse. Global warming is in the Bible, but not like you might think. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This heavens and earth will pass away and God will make a new heavens and a new earth. It's the power of God on display. And for us, for us humans, you know, the earth, it's like the most stable thing we know. Here we are, we're all living on this massive floating ball in space. We're revolving at 1,000 miles an hour. We're moving around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. But nothing changes for us. It all looks the same. The sun, moon, stars, they don't change. The seasons, they don't change. The world is constant to us, but that's only because of God who sustains all things by the word of his power. With the word, he brought it all into existence. And with the word, he can take it all out of existence, and he will. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, on purpose. And we're not talking like an asteroid. We're talking about the intentional judgment of God. And meanwhile, though, do you want to know something that won't pass away? The word of God, Christ's words, will not pass away. That's what he says. They form the greatest power in the universe. 
It's the very power of God himself. Did not Jesus himself come as the incarnate word? John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks the very words of God. He speaks the truth. And his truth will prevail in the end. God's words cannot be broken, John 10.35. They endure forever, Psalm 19, verse 9. They're completely true, John 17.17. And therefore, they give us everything we need to know to serve God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That applies to all scripture. Everything God has said, it's true, it's still true, it still applies, it will not pass away. And you would do well then to know God and his word and to heed it. But more specifically, why does Jesus say this in verse 30? Or rather, verse 31. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words... Or heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why is he saying that here? He's saying that because of its relevance to the Olivet Discourse. He's saying this to affirm the sureness of fulfillment. He just made some wild and crazy predictions, right? In this whole chapter, he said some some pretty intense predictions. But you know what? It's going to happen. Its fulfillment is sure. It's more sure than creation itself. His words... They're not going to pass away. Everything he just said will be fulfilled. That's what he's saying. That's the point. You can count on it. It's as sure as God himself, and he doesn't lie or change his mind. These things, all these things will come to pass. That includes the just judgments of God on a sinful world, and that includes the swift return of Christ to establish his reign. Jesus says this to reassure his disciples and us that his coming, And really, God's victory over sin and death, it's surer than creation itself. You can bank on it. You can count on it. And you you need to trust in it. You need to organize your life around it that you really believe. Yeah, it tests your faith. Do you believe it? Sure. But for those who do believe, live in light of the end because it's coming. And it's sure. It's the sureness of fulfillment. We've got one last verse to go. And one more question to answer. We get now to that main question that everyone wants to know, even the disciples. It's the question of when. Okay, well, that's all good, but okay, when's this going to happen? When will these things be fulfilled? That was one of their questions. When's this going to happen? They had in mind the end of the age, the time of the messianic kingdom. We have the same question. When will the Messiah return in glory? In this case, there's no answer. Only a surprise. Lastly, number four, the surprise of fulfillment. The surprise of fulfillment. Verse 32, he says, But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus has been very clear. His coming is sure. The fulfillment of his words, they're sure. When? Well, that's another matter. The detail, that detail is not knowable because it's not been revealed. Now, this doesn't stop people from desperately trying to figure it out like we talked about, but all such attempts to prove Jesus wrong, they are misguided from the start. Now, believe it or not, one such attempt to predict the day and the hour of Christ's return takes place tomorrow or in our time zone tonight. Did you know that? 
We've heard this talk about the four blood moons. It's tonight. I didn't plan it. <coughs> excuse me. I didn't plan it this way. <clears throat> just happened to line up with this sermon. But I mentioned this a while ago. Back in 2008, a man named Mark Blitz came to notoriety because he shared this discovery. He was studying NASA timetables and eclipse tables, and he found a rare tetrad of four blood moons will take place during the Jewish holidays of 2014 and 2015. He noted in the past, tetrads occurred in years of great significance for Israel, like 1948, 1967. Pretty interesting. And at first, he postulated that the fourth blood moon would herald the second coming of Christ. He predicted the second coming of Christ tomorrow, September 28th. Or in our time zone, it's actually tonight. At 7 p.m. And then after our evening service, we're all going to go out and look at the blood moon together. <laughs> now, he actually later backed off the idea of the second coming, but he still believes something significant regarding Israel will take place tomorrow or tonight. So I guess we'll find out. But I'll tell you this. Look, just, just don't bother with this type of stuff. Don't, don't worry about when. The day, the hour, no one knows. The angels don't know. We've seen the angels, they play quite a, quite a big role in the end times. But they don't know when that role begins. They look on inquisitively, wondering when the end will come. And the same goes for the Son, for Jesus. Now, again, a little rabbit trail, I'll be quick here, but some people are confused by this verse. You're thinking to yourself, wait, I thought Jesus was God. So therefore, he's omniscient, he knows all things. But here's a verse where it says he, he doesn't know something, so what, what gives? You're probably, some of you are probably wondering that right now. Well, if that confuses you, it means you have a little misunderstanding of the incarnation. The incarnation. Again, I'll be brief, but understand Jesus lived fundamentally as a man during his time on earth. Not before that, not after that, but during his time on the earth, he lived like a man, like you and me. He was still God, of course. He still had his divine nature, of course. And during the incarnation, Christ's divine nature was unaffected. He didn't lose a single attribute. Not a single attribute was diminished. But during the incarnation, he took on a second nature, a human nature, and he willingly limited his divine nature with his human nature, such that he lived like a real person, like you and me, like a normal human. Therefore, during his time on earth, for example, The divine nature of Jesus still possessed omnipotence. He was all-powerful. But the human nature was allowed to veil the divine. So it wasn't expressed. You could say, for example, his omnipotence was possessed, but not expressed. Jesus limited himself from tapping into his divine nature. Therefore, while he was on earth, he did not experience omnipotence. His divine nature was still omnipotent, but he didn't have the experience of being all-powerful. It was veiled. Anytime Jesus performed a miracle, it wasn't because he, uh, of his omnipotence, it was because he was tapping into the Spirit's power. The same goes for omniscience, knowing all things. His divine nature was still fully omniscient. He knew all things. But while he was on earth, he limited himself such that he did not experience omniscience. That's why scripture says, as a child, he learned things. He grew like you and I do because he had a real human experience. That, of course, exp- pertains only to his human nature, but that took place and was on display while he was on earth. So here it's actually not surprising at all to learn that Jesus doesn't know the date of, of his own return. 
He did not experience omniscience during the incarnation. And this is one fact that the Father did not reveal to the Son during his earthly sojourn. In this instance, God wanted Jesus, the Son, to live like us, like we do. You don't know when the end's going to take place, but you're living in light of that regardless. You're living in light of the end. And so the bottom line here is, look, if God hasn't revealed the day and the hour to angels, or even to his son while he was on earth, he's probably not going to reveal it to you. So, so don't bother. It's not for you to know. Like the disciples asked Jesus after the resurrection, they said, hey, is it now? Is, is this the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1.6. And Jesus simply said, look, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs that the Father is fixed by his own authority. The time is fixed. It's going to happen. And, and God knows when, but you don't. So don't worry about it. And here's the good news. It doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter. The when of fulfillment doesn't matter. Why not? Because whether Jesus comes back tomorrow or in a thousand more years, how God wants you to live doesn't change at all. It's the same. We learned last time that the second coming is the blessed hope, and it's meant to affect your life right now. As you anticipate Christ's return, his judgment of the wicked, his rescue of the righteous, that should move you to holiness. We're explicitly told to live righteously and godly in this present age in light of the blessed hope of the appearance of Christ. And we're not in heaven now, but if you've been redeemed by him, your life is with him, and that should spur you on to live like a heavenly citizen right now. And how much time we have left in this age, then it it actually doesn't matter. A day, a thousand years, we are to live like heavenly citizens right now, regardless. So it it doesn't matter. And I'm sure that God chose not to reveal the day and the hour because he wants each and every generation to experience the same purifying hope that Jesus could come at any moment. You know, if God told us when Jesus would return, then all the generations before that, they would have no hope of the second coming. They'd have no hope. But God did not reveal that because he wants every generation to have the blessed hope of the second coming. We we need that hope. It's an important hope. It's a purifying hope to know that Christ could come back right now. And he wants us all to have it. 1 John 3.3 Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When will Jesus return? What is the timing of the fulfillment? I'll tell you. It's any time. It's any time. That's how he wants you to live. Live as if he could return at any moment. Because he could. That's the expectation of the entire New Testament. And that's Christ's final word in the Olivet Discourse. It's the application, verses 33 through 37. He says, be alert. For the master could come at any moment. And how's he going to find you when he returns? That's a passage we'll look at next week to finish this off. But for now, remove any obsession you have with trying to find out when's it going to happen. You don't need to read the newspaper looking for signs of prophecy. Just spend your energy devoted to being faithful. Faithful to do what he's already called you to do. That doesn't change whether it's a day or a year or a thousand years. Just be faithful to serve the Lord in this age. Yes, We anticipate Christ's return at any moment and at every moment. And let that hope purify you and push you to 
a greater holiness. Worry about this. I'll leave you with 1 Timothy 6, 12-15. If you worry about anything, worry about this. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I charge you, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Christ Jesus, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing what you have revealed to us, not everything, but what we need. You've given us what we need to know you, to be saved by you, to worship you, and, and now to live in light of what's to come. We've spent many weeks, months even, learning things to come, what Christ has revealed about the end of this age and his return. And, and it's our anticipation. It's our joy. It is a blessed hope. We, we so desire for Christ to come and to even to judge the world and the wickedness that prevails. And we know his will be a just judgment. And we long for his rescue of, of the righteous. Lord, that's us. We're not righteous by ourselves, but simply by our faith in Christ. We've been made righteous by your grace. And now we just long for you to return, to, to finish this world off, to usher in everlasting righteousness, to bring the kingdom. When? We don't know. You haven't told us. But it doesn't matter. May we not get caught up with that. But instead, really devote ourselves to living just how you want us to live each and every day. It doesn't change. Our life is hid with Christ on high. We are heavenly citizens. May we live meaningfully now in light of that. Christ will return. His reward is with him. And may we be a pure people, a holy church, sharing the gospel with whatever time we have left, taking each day seriously, living as if Christ could come back tonight. Bless us in this pursuit, Lord, and guide us as we go forward. We want to worship you. The Master is absent, but we are here. We want to be faithful stewards of what you've given to us. Help us in this, and may we worship you until and even after you return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.